0: Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the debt ceiling, what it is, why it exists, and why it keeps coming up in congressional negotiations and wrangling. My guest is Barry Eichengreen, professor of economics and political science at UC Berkeley and co-author of In Defense of Public Debt and How to Achieve Inclusive Growth. Welcome, Barry. I wanted to have you on because the debt ceiling keeps coming up, keeps seemingly getting resolved, but not really, just kind of can kick down the road for a couple of months. And here we are in that situation again. Uh, we've just got a so-called deal, but we're going to come right back up on this in December. So before we get into the politics of it, I wanted to define exactly what is the debt ceiling?
1: The debt ceiling is a statute or a law that limits how much the federal government can borrow, how much debt the federal government can issue, sell to investors, accumulate.
0: So that's pretty simple. But the debt ceiling, every time we come up on this debt ceiling thing, it's not like we're proposing new spending. We've already made some decisions about spending. So I would love to talk a little bit about that disconnect, about the decisions that are made versus the stoppage point at which the debt ceiling
1: limits. The way you describe it, Gina, makes it sound as if the debt ceiling makes no sense. Yeah. And that's because the debt ceiling makes no (laughs) sense. So it's an inheritance from an earlier period that reflects some peculiar past circumstances. And now it can be used as a political device or a political lever through which one party can conceivably put pressure, make life difficult for the other party. So if you go way back in uh, US history, way back to James Madison or Andrew Jackson, there is this deep and abiding suspicion of the federal government as opposed to states' rights that has translated over time into trying to limit how much debt the federal government issues. The constitution empowers the Congress to authorize the treasury or prohibit the treasury if the senators can authorize or prohibit the treasury from borrowing. So it was that suspicion of overweening federal government that led to the inclusion in the constitution of this provision way back when in the 18th century. Um, That turned out to be inconvenient. Uh, in particular during World War I, where all of a sudden the federal government had to borrow large amounts of money in order to finance the war effort. And it was impractical to go to the Congress each week in order to request authorization to borrow. So the, the Congress passed a law establishing a ceiling on how much the Treasury could borrow in the immediate future to prevent the Treasury from having to go back each time to enable the Treasury to issue liberty bonds during World War One. Interestingly, there was also opposition in the United States to our entering the war and spending a lot of money on the war, from German Americans who were uncomfortable about the US fighting against Germany, from Irish Americans who were uncomfortable about the US allying itself with Great Britain, uh, Britain having just put down the Easter rising in uh, 1916. So this is really where the debt ceiling comes from, comes from circumstances long past. Uh, its existence today is an inheritance that doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
0: So it came about in World War One, and it wasn't, I mean, it was in part about money to like allow the Treasury to do some things without Congress having to oversee it. But it was also about all of these socio-political contexts that, I mean, we've got different ones today, of course, but that potentially are no longer quite relevant. Since that time, since World War I, has the debt ceiling served any positive purpose? Did it serve a positive purpose during World War Two? Did it serve a positive purpose during the 60s or anything like that? Or is it really, has it been sort of a a thorn ever since.
1: I see no evidence that the existence of the debt ceiling has, for example, limited deficit spending and the accumulation of debt by the U.S. Treasury. So one could imagine that people who are worried about the U.S. government accumulating too much debt would see the debt ceiling as a restraint on that. Overspending uh, and over, over borrowing. But in practice, uh, the Congress has always, in its wisdom, decided how much to spend and how much to tax. The Treasury has to borrow in order to make up the difference. And the debt ceiling has then traditionally been adjusted upward to permit that to occur, to permit the government to pay its bills by allowing the Treasury to borrow. To make up any shortfall between its expenditure obligations created by previous congressional action and its tax revenues similarly created by previous congressional action
0: so congress makes decisions about spending and then the treasury has to honor those and yet there's this sort of artificial ceiling That even though Congress said, yeah, we want to spend this, then they're saying, yeah, but we don't want to borrow for it, is what I'm hearing and and it's what I understand about the debt ceiling.
1: Again, I think you put it very well. You don't make it sound very sensible. (laughs) And that is because it isn't very sensible to have one set of congressional acts signed by the president that create spending obligations and that define the tax revenues that accrue to the Treasury. And then have another set of rules that prohibit the Treasury from borrowing money when the tax revenues fall short of the spending obligations that were already created in the past by congressional and executive action.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of a disconnect there. And it's been about a little over 100 years now since this has been a thing here in the U.S. When did it get political? So at some point, someone or some entity or some group figured out or decided, hey, we could use this in our political dealings, let's do this. So when did that happen and why?
1: That someone to whom you allude was Newt Gingrich. And uh, this was part of the Tea Party movement in the 1990s that I think signified growing polarization in the Congress and US politics more generally. So here was another weapon that one side could use against the other. In the 1990s and the first two decades of the 21st century, it never quite got to the point where we are now, that there was a lot of posturing over whether to raise the debt ceiling or not. But we never grew close to the cliff where the debt ceiling bound, the treasury was unable to borrow, and all of a sudden, the government couldn't pay its bills. I for one have the feeling that we're now closer to the cliff than we ever have been in the past. And I think that reflects the fact that politically, the country is even more polarized than it was in Tea Party days in the 1990s. And if you can inflict some pain on the other party, but conceivably at high economic cost if things go wrong, at least one political party in the United States, and and who knows, we haven't had a test of whether the Democrats would behave the same way or not. At least one political party is willing to run that risk.
0: Yes. Going back to the 1990s when Newt Gingrich was in Congress and then into the 2000s. There was all of a sudden this unanchoring of, oh, yeah, my congressional responsibility is to work to find solutions to the country's problems. And all of a sudden, Congress, it seems, has a different goal in mind. What is the goal of Congress supposed to be? But where are we? Because I think you're right. I think there's becoming less and less concern. I think there's always been well, we can play with this. We can go dance on that line, but we're always going to eventually do it. I think we're getting closer and closer to the space where we're like, you know what? Forget it. Let's just let it happen. So I'd love to talk a little bit about what Congress is supposed to be doing here and, and, and your thoughts on where we're at and what the implications are.
1: I always thought the purpose of Congress was to make good economic and social policy rather than to serve as a venue where one party can embarrass the other, which is in a nutshell what the current process around the debt ceiling uh, is being used for. In parallel with the debt ceiling debate, we are seeing a debate within the Democratic Party and between the Democrats and the Republicans about what the proper function of government in the United States is, uh, how far should we go in the direction of providing more generous child care allowances and government support for medical expenses and family leave and all the other things that are being debated that are being called by some in the Congress valuable social policies and by others in the Congress as a socialist agenda, we should be having a dialogue about what we as a country think about those policies, their structure, appropriate levels of spending and so forth. But using the debt ceiling to embarrass the other party by requiring it to vote along party lines to raise it and therefore being able to misconstrue what that party did and embarrass it, I don't think that advances that conversation that we should be having as a
0: nation. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Baleria. We're talking about the debt ceiling with Barry Eichengreen, professor of economics and political science at UC Berkeley. If I'm random public citizen and I hear about the debt ceiling, I think, ooh, debt. Yeah, I want to limit that. That sounds bad. Talk to me a little bit about how debt is used and how you view debt when it comes to government entities.
1: You give me an opportunity here to plug my brand new book, which came out uh, in September called in defense of public debt, which argues that uh, the ability to issue public debt is a valuable tool for governments uh, that they are right to resort to in an emergency, in circumstances of war, like World War I we were talking about before and the liberty loans, or a pandemic when government has to help people put food on the table and help Hospitals stay open and all all the other essential services. Tax revenues may be going down in, in those difficult economic times. And government spending necessarily has to go up to continue to provide basic social services. How does government continue to spend when tax revenues are stagnant or going down? By issuing bonds to savers and investors who buy those bonds with cash, that the treasury can turn around and spend. Debt can be misused as well, and there are plenty of historical examples that I talk about in my book of misuse, but I think we saw in 2020, for example, how valuable this ability to issue debt in an emergency is. One explanation for why the economic slump was milder in the United States than in Latin American countries, for example, is that the United States has better developed financial markets and the US Treasury has a better track record at servicing its debt than its counterpart in many Latin American countries. So the US government could borrow more and do more in that emergency. So that creates some challenges for the future. Obviously, And we need to think about how to manage that heavier debt burden as the pandemic hopefully uh, recedes in the rearview mirror. But that's not an argument for having a binding debt ceiling that would have prevented the government from doing the right thing. In 2020,
0: I think back to the 90s where we had robust economy and we were able to pay down the debt. And so, you know, my understanding is a non-economist, and you can enlighten me, is that during bad times, we should be borrowing because we've got to keep things running. We've got to take care of people. Um, and then during better times, that's when we manage or deal with what we did during the harder times.
1: You flagged one way that governments can deal with legacy debt and inheritance of debt, which is to retire it. After the event prompting issuance has passed, but the other way they can deal with it is by growing the economy, by growing the denominator of the debt to national income ratio. So how much debt you have in absolute terms is not really relevant. There is this debt clock at Times Square where the numbers tick off every second and you see that the uh, federal government debt is $22 trillion or some such number. But what matters is how heavy the debt is relative to the size of the economy. So if the economy grows, tax revenues accruing to the treasury will grow as well. And paying the interest on a given debt will be correspondingly less burdensome. So what we have to hope for is that unlike the 2010s, When productivity growth was relatively slow, so the growth of the economy was only modest going forward. Maybe the digital revolution and all the things we learned during the pandemic about working from home and telehealth and all that stuff will translate into faster economic growth so that we'll be able to grow the denominator of the debt to GDP ratio.
0: And that's a a concept that I think we as a society, it's difficult to get our heads around. You say it doesn't necessarily matter how big the debt is, as long as we're growing the economy and relative to the debt, we're able to pay off our obligations. And that's a hard one, especially in our soundbite society where all I see is that debt number. And then you can, Try to make connections to. Okay, now we have the debt ceiling. We've already decided we're going to pay this money. We already decided we're going to spend it. Now we're limiting our ability to actually borrow for it. So, what are the implications of that? You know, if we hit that point, if some in Congress decide, oh yeah, let's just let the wheels fall off. Let's just let's just go over that cliff. What are the implications of that?
1: There are several possible scenarios here, but let's start with the simple one, which is that the debt ceiling is not raised, the US Treasury is not permitted to issue more Treasury bills and bonds, and its cash on hand runs out. It's going to have to decide which bills to pay and which ones not to pay. So the choices include uh, paying interest to the holders of already existing Treasury bonds, and that means paying interest to uh, money market mutual funds. And who holds those? Interest to pension funds that hold U.S. Treasury bonds. Who do those pension funds pay out money to? So all of that has implications for ordinary Americans. The Treasury could decide that its first priority, therefore, was to pay interest on its already existing obligations, but then it would have to decide what else not to pay. So what else could include not paying uh, social security benefits monthly, not paying military salaries weekly. Um, So there are uh, a bunch of really terrible choices here. Uh, When you begin to think about them, they're not choices that any responsible member of Congress would want the treasury to have to face. Another scenario is where the president steps in. So this is at least a possibility. The 14th Amendment to the Constitution passed after the Civil War was concerned with whether payments should be made to former slave owners in the South. It was concerned about whether the federal government would have to honor debt that had been issued by the Confederacy during the Civil War. But it also contained a provision that said nothing shall be done to compromise the full faith and credit of the federal government's debt. So the president could declare, he could issue an executive order saying that not being able to issue more debt in order to pay interest on the existing debt and meet other obligations would be in violation of the 14th Amendment, and he would basically try to override by executive order, the debt ceiling. That would be litigated, it's never been done. We don't know how it would turn out, but it's another possible scenario that would uh, border on a constitutional crisis. So none of these options are very attractive. There is also a crazy one called the trillion dollar platinum coin, where the idea is that the treasury could use existing law to mint a coin with a face value of a trillion dollars and deposit this at the Federal Reserve. And the Fed would turn around and transfer to the treasury a trillion dollars worth of cash. Uh, I think this is crazy because of the precedent it sets. It's crazy because it would damage the finances, the balance sheet of the Fed. The Fed would end up with essentially a worthless coin, and other assets that it had previously would have been transferred to the Treasury. It would put the Fed squarely in the middle of this dispute between the two parties in the Congress. So none of these ideas are very palatable.
0: In addition to In Defense of Public Debt, which came out this year, you were involved in a publication called How to Achieve Inclusive Growth. And with the debt ceiling and potentially having us uh, not meet our obligations. Yes, it's going to affect average everyday Americans, but we often find that uh, people at the margins are affected uh, a lot more significantly. How to protect people at the margins while this kind of process goes on and how we might do better by that segment of our population economically.
1: When I think about inclusive growth in the United States, I think about two different things. Number one, helping to protect people, ensure people against emergencies. So things happen like the pandemic, where people in a disadvantaged economic position don't have enough money in the bank to pay the rent and put food on the table, etc. And there is a role for government to provide insurance of a sort that people are not always able to provide for themselves. And then we have to have a national conversation about how to pay for that Are we going to levy additional taxes? And on whom exactly? And there are elements of that conversation going on. And number two, inclusive growth means preparing people better to have productive and rewarding careers. Early childhood education, uh, continuing education, free community college. There are lots of ideas out there. And I think a growing body of evidence on on what works and what doesn't. And as we decide how best to invest in people so that they can have productive and rewarding careers, we again have to have a conversation about how to pay for that. And if we can't agree on who to tax uh, to fully finance these investments, then we have to have a conversation about how much to borrow. The other thing I would say is that ongoing transfer payments, transferring money to families with children in need, and there are going to be families with children in need every year, is something that we should pay for on an ongoing basis because that expense is going to come up year after year after year. There are going to be families in that position and we can't indefinitely borrow in order to uh, meet that expense. On the other hand, investments in people and investments in physical infrastructure for that matter are going to make for a more productive economy over time, which will mean an economy that grows faster, more revenue, tax revenue will accrue to the US Treasury. And if we borrow to finance physical investment, physical infrastructure, and social infrastructure that are productive and that pay those returns, then borrowing to finance those investments makes sense. So, unlike Senator Manchin, I think that we can safely borrow for physical infrastructure and social infrastructure if we're convinced those investments are going to be productive. On the other hand, for transfer payments on an ongoing basis, we need to decide who and how to tax.
0: To get back to the sort of the debt ceiling, we've averted a crisis for now, even if we continue to make deals and we never get to that point where we um, we go over the cliff or we you know we hit the debt ceiling. There's still damage being done, yes. I mean, there's still concern around the world. as a player on the global economic marketplace, our behaviors and decisions or lack of decisions have implications, even if we never do hit the debt ceiling.
1: So we have a little bit of evidence uh, on that from previous debt ceiling crises in 2011 and 2013, where we didn't go over the cliff, but investors and markets grew seriously worried about the possibility that we might. And what you saw was the government's borrowing costs begin to go up. And money being unnecessarily lost by the treasury, money that might have been put to other purposes including paying off existing debt if that had been your priority. Instead, uh, in order to finance existing programs and issue additional debt, the government had to pay more so long as this uncertainty lingered. So it lingered for a matter of months and then it kind of dissipated. And we saw some hints of the same thing uh, in the first week of October 2021 of treasury bill rates beginning to go up a little bit as investors grew more worried about the possibility that we might again go off the cliff. So it costs the government money that could be put to good use to pay for social programs if that's your priority to retire existing debt if that's your priority.
0: So where can we go from here? How can we do this differently? How can Congress better manage our debt? What are some alternative ways of doing this other than a debt ceiling? Or can a debt ceiling be part of a um, logical and coherent approach to debt?
1: I think the debt ceiling serves no positive purpose. Uh, The first best solution would simply be to abolish it. The second best solution would be to raise it high so that we don't have to revisit the issue and the problem for a long period of time. And all the while, I think we should be having a conversation about both how expansive a government we think the United States needs and how willing we are to pay for that. Again, those discussions are underway on the tax side. You'll you'll have seen there's debate about whether corporate tax rates should be raised to pre-Trump levels or even even higher to earlier levels, whether there should be additional taxes on the very wealthy, whether capital gains should be taxed at the same rate as ordinary income, and so forth. That's the substantive conversation we should be having on, on the tax side to go along with uh, other substantive conversation about what kind of public sector we should have in the U.S.
0: On that point, I should apologize to you for bringing you on to talk about the debt ceiling, because really the conversation you're talking about is the conversation we should be having. And um, I'm glad you are infusing uh, this with those points. Um, But I also want to bring some context and understanding to what, what we're doing right now.
1: We need to keep our eye on the ball to think about what we as a country want our public sector, our federal government and, and government more generally to do. And what we think as a country is a reasonably efficient, but also equitable tax system. So if the pandemic has a silver lining, it's really brought those issues to a fore. People are uh, have been talking about those questions in 2021 in a serious way that they hadn't really for some time before. And it would be a shame if this debt ceiling diversion uh, interfered with that conversation.
0: Thank you to my guest, Barry Eichengreen, professor of economics and political science at UC Berkeley and co-author of In Defense of Public Debt and How to Achieve Inclusive Growth. music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.